There we go. For the record, that earlier sound problem was because uh, I can't read, apparently. So um, I had my mic muted. <laughs> Here we are seven years in, and I forget how to work uh, the microphone that I've had since the beginning. This morning we begin our study on the life of the Apostle Paul. If you uh, have not been with us uh, recently, or maybe this is your first time uh, with us here at New Hope, we're glad to have you. Uh, our typical diet of Scripture is to work through books of the Bible systematically. This summer we have uh, some very, very special guests joining us each each Sunday morning, uh, our younger children who are usually in su doing Sunday school during the, the sermon time each week. And so we've decided to work through the life of the Apostle Paul because we felt like working through narratives in Scripture might be easier uh, to keep our children focused. Uh, but what we found is actually they, 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 they came up as we were finishing the book of Ephesians, uh, which obviously is not a narrative uh, but is an epistle. And uh, the children, uh, since they have been here, have been great. Uh, they listen well, they take great notes, and we just praise God for uh, the work that he is doing in their lives. And uh, uh, young people, I say that uh, publicly to encourage you to keep that up. You're doing a great job. But today we're going to begin our study on the life of the Apostle Paul. That begins uh, really uh, with his conversion in Acts chapter 9. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 19, not 9. Uh, I had given Allison the wrong uh, passage when I sent her the information for the bulletin this week. That's found actually on page 917, if you'd like to follow along in the Bibles that have been provided for you there in the rows. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly... A light from heaven <clears throat> appeared all around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And now there was a, a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, 
Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you, have, by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Let us pray. Lord, may we truly... recognize the truth of one of the last verses we just sang. All the treasures of this world will never satisfy. Only you satisfy. Lord, I pray that you would open hearts and minds to the truth. Lord, that as we prepare our hearts to worship you together as your church through the celebration of the Lord's Supper this morning, Lord, that your spirit would move mightily in, in preparing us to, to repent of sin, to, to, to turn to you uh, in greater faith, Lord, perhaps for some among us even to believe for the first time. So that they would learn the joy of what it means to truly cling to Christ. Be at work among us from the oldest to the youngest. So that your name would be glorified among us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Now, there are many different ways that, that the Bible describes the change that takes place when, when a person experiences salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Just two weeks ago, we, we completed our study of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 actually describes salvation as, as the Christian being brought from death to life. 
In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul writes of being rescued from the kingdom of darkness and, and being transferred into the kingdom of Jesus where we join other saints in the light. In Romans chapter 6, Paul reminds us that, that although we were once slaves to sin, we have now been set free in order to become slaves of righteousness. And in each one of these descriptions and many, many more in Scripture, what we see is a, is a total transformation of the Christian from their former state. In fact, they're, they're described as being the opposite of who they once were. They were dead. Now, now they're alive because of Christ. They were in darkness. Now they are in the light. They were slaves to sin, but now in Christ have been set free from sin and now are, are slaves to righteousness because Jesus has made us righteous. Now we must pursue righteousness as his followers. Perhaps you, you know people with dramatic testimonies. The former thief now serves others generously because she's been forgiven by God. The, the man who was once enslaved to his temper is now peaceable and loving towards others because the power of sin has been broken in his life. These are beautiful reality of, of what happens when we experience the grace of God. Now, I'm not saying that the new Christian becomes immediately spiritually mature or perfect for that matter. But a change takes place because of the new life one has been given through faith in Christ. We are not who we were. Church history is, is filled with examples of the dramatic shift that takes place when one turns to Christ. Last October, we, 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 we were visited by Martin Luther, and, and we saw how he went from, from being a, a, a coward in, to, to, to being brave in the faith. John Knox was with us this spring, a man transformed through faith in Christ. These are two examples from church ministry, history of, uh, of men who had their lives radically changed once they came to faith in Christ. Some of you were here for this, but, but years ago I, I shared the story of Jerry. It was a, a young teenager who, who quite honestly had a, a frighteningly, frighteningly quick temper. He was a young African-American boy who we reached out to as a church and who, who came to faith in Christ and who was transformed. And his change caused the church to change. As they saw... A church who was of a, uh, definitely a lighter hue, if you will, 
As they saw this young man who, who, who was once angry come to church week after week and, and love them, and love them uncomfortably so. Could not deny the work that God had done. And, and, and God used him to, to, to tear down racial, racial undertones and, and, and the sin of, of racism in many people's lives. His life was transformed because he came to Christ. The Bible, too, is, is filled with many examples of, of people who were transformed, radically changed by God. T today we begin a study on one of those people. We, we tend to refer to him as the Apostle Paul. But before we dive into the life of Paul, I, I want to point something out as it relates to how God changes us in salvation. Everyone. It, it doesn't matter that you don't have that dramatic testimony that you were once an axe murderer and now you've come to faith in Christ and, and, and you're able to, to, to preach to the masses in prison about what Christ has done. That's powerful. It is a, a great testimony when those things happen or, or the former drug user or the serial adulterer or, or, or whatever that may be. Those are, are powerful testimonies, but it is no less a miracle when, when someone has, has lived a, a relatively moral life but still come to recognize their need for the, salva of the salvation that can only be found through the sacrifice of Jesus on behalf of our sins. That is, it, is, it is no less dramatic that, 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 that the youngest person in here who, who has truly believed has been forgiven by God, even though they haven't had the opportunity to make some of the mistakes that the, some of the rest of us have made. It is no less dramatic that they are saved than, than, than some of what we would consider the worst of us are saved. It is a work of God. And everyone who truly believes experiences a fundamental change. It's, a, it's an outward reflection of the inward change. And it may not be as drastic as what we see in the Apostle Paul or, or what we see in some of these other situations. But for those who, who genuinely believe, it is present. God changes those who believe. This morning I, I want to focus on what might be in your Bible under the heading of the conversion of Saul. As we consider Acts chapter 9 verses 1 through 19, I, I want to do so under three headings or three points. First of all, we're going to look at Saul, the hater of the church. Secondly, we're going to look at Saul's encounter with Jesus. Saul meets Jesus. And finally, Saul's future revealed. It's very clearly laid out in the text. And really what I am doing is, is setting the table for, for Wes, who is going to preach next week and, and talk about the, actually look at the, the fruit of Paul's conversion and how that affected the church. So let's look first at verses 1 and 2. Saul, the hater of the church. Verse 1, 
says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, when we typically think of the life of Saul, we tend to focus on his life after he came to Christ. We, we, we tend to focus on his ministry as an apostle. Why? Because we see his name all over the New Testament, right? Most of the epistles you read start off with the words Paul, an, an apostle of, of, of Jesus Christ. Paul, a slave of Christ. It's everywhere, right? So, so, so it makes sense that we think of Paul in terms of Christian Paul, his, his ministry. In Acts 13, 9, it, that's the first time we see Saul referenced as Paul in the Bible. So, so why the two names? What, what, was Paul some kind of, uh, what, what, was, what, what was Saul the, the name that he used when he was a persecutor of the church? And, and Paul the name that he used when he was trying to fly under the radar and, and minister to the Gentiles? Or what, What's going on there? Is this, is this one of those situations where if you look at the, uh, in the Gospels, what happens with Jesus and Peter? Jesus gives Peter a new name. Is this what's going on? It's an important question to answer since we are looking at a study on his life and we're going to be moving into his different name pretty quickly. Well, I don't think this is an instance of, of, of God giving Saul a new name, Paul. Keep in mind who we're dealing with. Saul, who was Jewish, Saul would be his Hebrew name, probably named after King Saul in the Old Testament. But Saul was also a citizen of what city? Anybody remember? Say it out loud. Rome. That's right. He, was, he had Roman citizenship as well. Saul is a Hebrew name. Paul is actually a Latin name, which that would be what he would be referred to when he was in those Gentile cities. Where does Paul spend most of his ministry? To who? The Jews or the Gentiles? The Gentiles. So I think we see the Paul using the name Paul in Scripture more than Saul in Scripture because we see primarily, especially in his letters, Paul writing to the Gentiles. So it's important that we understand that distinction. It's, we, we, we see him called Saul up to chapter 13, and then bam, in 13, what's Paul doing? Going to the Gentiles. So, so, so I hope that answers maybe that maybe you don't care. But, but, but hopefully that helps you see how this works. This, this is not, I don't think this is an issue of where God shows up and says, okay, you've got a new name now because you're a new guy, but because we see Saul ministering as Saul for a while before he's referred to as Paul. Rabbit trail, but important because we're going to see him called both in our study. As we know... Paul slash Saul was, well, was not always an apostle. In, in fact, we, we see here that he was one of the biggest enemies of the church during its early growth. Saul is first mentioned in the New Testament, or in the Bible, in Acts chapter 7, verse uh, 58. Now, if you're aware of, of Acts chapters 6 and 7, you know that, uh, it, in my mind, it is one of the most um, incredible and compelling narratives in Scripture. 
Because in that you have the account of Stephen being martyred, killed for being a follower of Christ. And we find Saul being mentioned for, for the first time right before they stone Stephen. Stephen was, was a devout believer who had been taken, arrested by religious leaders and brought before the high priest on, on what the Bible describes as false charges. But Stephen seizes the opportunity and gives them one of the greatest lessons on the Old Testament and how that ties into the gospel ever given. And if you read that account, you know that Stephen's presentation did not lead to their conversion, but it led them into a rage, a rage so great that they would stone him to death. Luke actually records this much better than I can tell you, so let me read verses 54 through 60 of Acts chapter 7. It says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They are the religious leaders, and they ground their teeth at him. You're mad when you grind your teeth. Some of you know what that's like. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, when he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. He died. So we first meet Saul there at the stoning of Stephen. And if we just stop there, it might be easy to think, well, maybe Saul saw that and realized that, you know what, this is a bad thing. We, we shouldn't have done that. Well, if you keep reading, the very next verse, chapter 8, verse 1, it says this. And Saul approved of his execution. Saul was not a good guy. Now, he was very religious and he was passionate about Judaism. And we know from other passages like Philippians 3, verses 2 through 11, that he was a, a Pharisee who took his role very seriously. And at this time, he thought the stoning of Stephen was a good thing because he thought Stephen was an enemy of God and that Jesus was an enemy of God. The, the Pharisees were supposed to be experts in, in the books that, that, uh, that make up pretty much what we call the Old Testament. The Old Testament has a lot to say about someone they called the Messiah who, who was supposed to come and save the people of God, both politically and spiritually. And we know from studying the New Testament that Jesus is indeed that promised Messiah. 
But Saul, at this point, the supposed expert in the law of God, who devoted his life to his religion, was blind to the identity of who Jesus truly was. This stoning of Stephen was the launching pad to a great persecution of the church by the religious leaders and those in authority. And when we get to chapter 9, we find that Paul, Saul, front and center, is front and center in the war against the church. In verses 1 and 2, we see that Paul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. His attitudes towards the Christians had not changed from what we saw in chapter 8, verse 1. If anything, it seems that his hatred has grown. He was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This isn't primarily just a reference to the disciples who were the leaders, but the disciples in terms of all who followed Christ. He he, he had sought and received letters from the high priests, which were a lot like what you would call an extradition letter now or or a a statement that gave him the legal right to be able to, under the authority of the temple priest, to be our temple guard, to be able to arrest and uh, restrain these believers and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial and punishment. He was going to Damascus because there was a great number of Jews that lived in Damascus. It is easy to make the case for Paul's hatred for the church, is it not? Scripture lays it out clearly, even in Paul's own words. As you look at the various places in the New Testament where he gives a little biography concerning his life. He hated the church until he met Jesus, verses 3 through 9. Because now as he, Paul, went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. We see that that, that Saul's encounter with Jesus was both a dramatic one and a supernatural one. And it is one that would change the course of history in relation to the spread of the gospel into the known world. And also in his writing, much of the New Testament. This encounter is plain in Scripture. Paul and his entourage are are nearing Damascus and and a light from heaven shone all around Paul. A light that the people who were with him could not see. Paul falls to the ground in fear and hears the voice of Jesus with the question, Why are you persecuting me? (laughs) 
I'm not sure we can fully appreciate the, the, the absolute terror that must have fallen upon Saul at this moment. He wasn't seeking Jesus. In fact, he was looking to destroy all who followed him. God could have struck Saul dead at any point and would have been entirely justified in doing so. But instead, Jesus appears to Saul in his glory with a question. Why are you persecuting me? And Saul answers with the question of his own. Who are you, Lord? Now, it would be a mistake for us to read this as a casual conversation or a flippant response from Saul. This is a supernatural encounter and Saul recognizes full well that this is an encounter with God. Who are you, Lord? He wants to know. He was a devoted follower of, uh, of, the, of Judaism. It wasn't that, 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 that Paul could care less of the things of God. He was just blind to them. Who are you, Lord? And everything that, that Saul was fighting for would come crashing down with the next sentence. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul could no longer plead ignorance or rest on the fact that he thought his intentions were good. The Lord in his glory had just revealed that Saul was on the wrong side of the battle. And Saul is undone. Brothers and sisters, don't lose sight of this. Saul is undone by Christ in this encounter. And the reality is that this is, mu is mu what must happen to every person who truly becomes a child of God. Not that we need him to appear to us in, in that supernatural fashion like he did Saul in this encounter. But we must recognize that we must be undone before God before we can receive what we need from Him. We need to recognize that no matter how moral or how immoral our lives may look to those around us, that when it comes to our standing before a holy God, we are guilty. We deserve condemnation. Every sinful act, even indifference, towards God is an act of cosmic treason, to borrow from R.C. Sproul. You do not have to persecute the church the way Paul did to be just as guilty before God. It's when we are undone that we recognize that we have nothing to offer God in and of ourselves. 
when we recognize that, then we are in the right condition to receive what God has done for us in Christ. Let that sink in. Does not serve you well as your pastor to, 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 to maximize your condition before salvation as being, oh, well, God must have looked on you and, and thought, wow, there was something worth saving there. There was nothing worth saving in any of us, which makes the glory of what God has done in Christ even more incredible. We, we, we would agree with the statement, yes, yeah, Saul, that Saul was bad. He, he, God should have struck him down on the road. God should have struck us all down when we took our first breath in this life. Were it not for his great love and his patience. Paul was undone. Have you been undone before God? Have you come to the realization that there is nothing you have to offer him but your sin? And have you responded in total dependence on what he has done for you? Recognizing that now, now we can respond. Now we can live for his glory because the shame of our sin has been removed. And even in our efforts to, to live to honor him, we need his help. We're still weak. We need to be dependent upon him. The, the result of this encounter, Paul being undone before God, was that he was physically blind. But for the first time in his life, he could spiritually see. Let that sink in. Paul was probably one of the most religious men who's ever lived. If you believe his testimony about himself. But was dead and blind before God. Until he was undone by God. Have you been undone before God, brothers, sisters? He is physically blind. And he has to rely on his traveling companions. And I wonder whatever happened to them. It says they heard what happened. They just didn't see the light. I wonder what happened them did not see Christ in his glory but Paul has them take them into the city where he neither, eat, neither eats nor drinks for three days and it's in verses 10 through 19 that we see Saul's future revealed it says now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias and the Lord said to him in a vision Ananias and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. That's a tongue twister. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. 
And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. Jesus wasn't finished appearing. He, he, he appears to a disciple named Ananias in a vision, and he tells him to go and care for the guy who wanted to arrest and have him killed. In verse 13, it seems that, that Ananias is, is skeptical. Jesus, are you sure you, you, you know who you're telling me to, to, to go and lay hands on, pray for? This is Saul. This is that guy who hates us. You want me to go to him? Now listen, we could, we could preach an entire sermon on, on the courage of Ananias and his obedience, his faithfulness to, to do something that God called him to do that, that, that was quite frightening. But God comforts Ananias by revealing two important truths about Saul's future ministry. First of all, he had been chosen by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to, to stand before kings and proclaim the gospel, and, and to teach the children of Israel. Now that sounds pretty good, does it not? Jesus ha, ha, has appeared to Saul, which led to his conversion. Now, now God's enemy would, would become his representative before Gentiles and kings and the Jews. Sign me up. <laughs> Let's go tell the world about Jesus. It'll be great. What an opportunity. I'm going to be ushered in before Caesar, and I'm going to, I'm going to get to preach and, 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 and tell him all about what Christ has done. If Jesus had stopped there, that's awesome, right? We'd all sign up for that. No matter what your political persuasion, you would consider it a great honor to stand before whoever the president was or the governor or the senator for the sole purpose of telling them what Christ has done. It would be frightening, but, but most of you would jump at the chance to, to be faithful in that way, especially without fear of repercussions, right? Hey, maybe Saul would get his own luxury yacht to, to travel up and down the coast to take the gospel to people, right? Book deals and podcasts, maybe a mansion by the Sea of Galilee. Saul, chosen by God. Woohoo! Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. 
The second truth about Saul's ministry would be that he would suffer for the name of Christ. This ministry before kings and Gentiles and the Jews would be a ministry marked by suffering. Verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Hey, wait a minute. Can, Jesus, can, can we go back to the part where he's going to be preaching the gospel to Gentiles, kings, and, and the children of Israel, please? Do, do we have to have point two? Well, keep in mind, Saul had been changed. His, his perspective had been changed. He now sees that, that Jesus truly is the Messiah. His heart has been transformed, but the world around him had not been. And the same is true today. So we have people responding by faith to the gospel. They are transformed, but the world that we live in is still hostile to God. Still hostile to God and still hostile towards the church. Why is that? Why, why is the gospel such an offense to unbelievers? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. What does the gospel do? It, it, it reveals what? Our guilt before God. We don't measure up. We deserve punishment. It's not a, a self-help message. It's not one that focuses on how great we aren't. It tells us that there's only one way to be accepted by God. And that's total dependence on the faithfulness of someone else. Jesus Christ. Now God loves us. And that love is clearly revealed in the cross. The cross reveals the vastness of that love. He's going to redeem for himself a, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's a lot of love. But it's the way he says it has to be. We, we don't get a place at the negotiation table with God. Well, Lord, how about, how about we skip out on the Jesus and admitting I'm sinful, and, and let me just do enough good works to outweigh my bad. Will that still get me in? No. Well, what if I'm devoted to, to something that's kind of like Christianity, but not really, because, but because honestly it's more about me than it is about you? Well, no! The gospel stares us right in the face and tells us we are not good enough. It doesn't stop there. It says we can never be good enough. But thankfully, God has provided a better way. This is a stumbling block. People don't want to hear that. Meander to any bookstore, secular or Christian, and you will find title after title devoted to how great we are or how to, to live a better life while neglecting the, the, the most important issue to begin with, our standing before a holy God. Our sinful condition it, it, it's, makes this a message that we don't want to hear. There might be people in this room that don't want to hear that. 
but you better listen to it. You better listen. Because if you are hardened to that truth, you you need to pray and ask God to change your heart. Even now, pray and plead with God, change my heart. Because a rejection of the gospel is a rejection of the God who saves. This message will not make us popular with the world. It will tolerate us until the message makes them uncomfortable. Jesus makes it clear to Saul that with the privilege of taking the gospel before men of all stature, there would be great suffering. And as we move forward this summer, considering the life of Paul, we will see clearly that this was indeed the case. In verses 17 through 19, we see that Ananias obeys. Saul's sight is restored. Saul is baptized. He is all in for Christ. What a great passage for Communion Sunday, is it not? It's time for reflecting on what Christ has done. It's a time of examination. It's a time where we publicly declare our faith as the gentlemen are are coming forward to to help distribute the the elements this morning. I want to challenge you. This is a time of reflection. If the gospel is still an offense to you, it is likely that you have not truly believed. The great news is, is that none who turn to him in faith will be rejected by him. Communion is all about the church and our relationship with God in Christ. It's a celebration of what Christ has done. It's a celebration of our union with him through faith. We, we eat the bread, we, we, we drink the juice as a sign, uh, symbolizes the, the faith that we have already have for him, the dependence we have upon him. We, we reflect on our lives and, and we be, begin to consider, are there ways in my life that, 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 that don't testify to what I say I believe? Yeah? This is a reminder that we repent of those things. We want every aspect of our lives to to fall under the lordship of Christ. It's a time that we celebrate with brothers and sisters around us. And we testify as as we eat and we drink. Yeah, I trust the same Jesus you do. We're in this together. He calls us to do this regularly until he comes back again. This is a glorious experience. We we, we don't need a Damascus Road experience in the sense that we have Jesus appear before us for us to recognize and be undone before God. 
but we must respond in faith to what he's done. I pray this is true for each of us who takes part in the Lord's Supper this morning. Gentlemen, please come forward.